Every individual must learn what it means to be human, and this understanding begins developing in early childhood. What matters most for our youngest children is how we are with them, how we show them what kindness, empathy, and respect look like. They're following their leaders. Welcome to the Leading for Children podcast. We're excited you're here with us today as we explore rule number five of the 11 simple rules to create thriving communities for children, safe. I'm Judy Jablon, founder and executive director of Leading for Children. Joining me in this conversation is my friend and colleague, Nicole Parks. Thanks, Nicole. Hi, Judy. Hi, everyone out there listening in. My name is Nicole Parks, and I am the Deputy Executive Director here at Leading for Children, and I look forward to today's conversation. Want to get us started? Sure, I'd love to. So often when we hear the word safe, we think about freedom from the potential of physical harm. It is so much less common that emotional well-being comes to mind. But while one kind of threat receives more attention, our brains can't easily distinguish between the two. And we tend to react the same to both. Mm. That's why it's so important that when we create an environment where we interact with children and other adults, we are thinking about how safety can look and feel like many things. Because we are collectively familiar with physical safety. In this conversation, let's dig deeper into what emotional safety and unsafety might look and feel. So I'd like to start us out with a carousel of sorts between the two of us. So let's take a moment to think, what does a lack of emotional safety look and feel like to you? Hmm. Well, I think for me, I go right back to my childhood and to history and to being afraid of being wrong. I, I just don't even know how early that started for me being judged, you know, first, I think in my family, being wrong at the dinner table, because I was the youngest, I think in school, being embarrassed if I raised my hand and I said the wrong thing. What about you? Do you, do you have memories of judgment and sort of being wrong? More so of judgment, not so much as being wrong, but growing up in, in the community and growing up in poverty, definitely a lot of being judged, right? Because your exterior is what you see first and you become very aware of the differences. Mm. And so I think for me, in a sense, I learned or developed a fear of being seen because very early on as a child, you know, when your clothes are tattered or dirty or you know, you don't have the things that the other children have, you really try to make yourself as invisible as possible so that nobody notice you. And so I think for me, I somehow cultivated very young this fear of being seen by others. And part of that was so connected to judgment. It's interesting to have this conversation on our podcast before we've had some of these conversations personally. You know, obviously, as a white person, I wasn't different in my skin color. I definitely felt different in the sense of being a girl. 
-hmm. And that in the 50s and 60s growing up, I knew very early on that my gender was not as good. And then I was from a different background than most of the children in my neighborhood. My family didn't practice a religion, but most of the kids in my community were Italian or Irish Catholic, and they went to church, and I was discriminated against by my, you know, five and six and seven-year-old friends because something was wrong with me that I didn't go to church, and I, I didn't know how to process that. So, wow, it's incredible, like the profound implications of, you know, we're talking about race and we're talking about mm -hmm. socioeconomic status and we're talking about religion and we're talking about allegedly community and early on feeling other and different for mm -hmm. so many different reasons. And that certainly creates emotional unsafety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and it makes me think, Judy, when I think about the third aspect of developmentally appropriate practice, this idea of children's, you know, the communities, the social settings, the cultures in which they grow up in, that that does play such a huge role in how each person experienced the world and how that can create very specific emotional feelings of unsafety. And how important it is that we, as the adults, especially in children's lives, are aware of that. Aware of it and also that we move through our experiences so we can make more explicit and more overtly safe the environment for everyone. One thing I want to add is language, that in both of our experiences, We've had English as our primary language, and we didn't have to feel unsafe around being understood, but we certainly know how many people have early fears, and not just early, but perpetual fears around not being understood, speaking a different primary language or first language. Yeah. I think another connected aspect of unsafe is fear of rejection. Mm -hmm. I think so much of what we're talking about has to do with judgment, fitting in or not fitting in, being rejected. Those are certainly areas where emotional safety come in. Yeah, for sure. And, and again, just thinking about the roles of adults in the lives of children, and that's a core responsibility that we have is to ensure that children grow up in safe environments. And that include emotional safety. And yet that tension between that and then having adults who sometimes themselves feel emotionally unsafe and how that can impact how we in turn show up with and for children. That makes it even more important that we do the work it takes to move through that. And it does start with acknowledging it and being aware of it. I think often about your parenting of Gracie and 
you know, I'm thinking about judgment of rejection of some of the stories you've shared about how you've supported Gracie in having a voice and making sure she's not misunderstood. And I think that, you know, you've taught me so much about being an ally for yourself and how do we help children take spaces that feel unsafe and finding the adult who can help you advocate for yourself, finding the other adult who can help you advocate for yourself. I think for so many children, they don't necessarily find those advocates or have those advocates. And as a result, we become adults who don't know how to look for advocates. Yeah, I, I think that is very true. And, and I think that I was very fortunate in a lot of what people may consider to be some of the challenges I faced young in life. One of the gifts that I did have was I did have key adults in my life that were able to show up for me in that way. And I, even though I didn't realize what they were giving me then as I grew older, I grew to really appreciate and realize that there that was where a lot of my resiliency and even my parenting practices were developed from was because I did have some models of what that could look like and be like. So I'm going to try to pull the thread and I'm going to need your help. Okay. So in the beginning, when I opened and I said, children are following their leaders and so often you know, our circumstances as young children impede our ability to cultivate that resilience. You pointed out that a, a powerful resiliency factor is a relationship with key adults. And I think this is a place where the 11 simple rules starting with relationships that are open, honest, trusting, and two-way connect to environment because one way that we can create a safe environment for children and for other adults is by paying attention to those relationships and really making sure that, that every child has at least one or two key relationships with someone who they can really trust so that they have that way to find emotional safety. And I think both of us are people that relied on key adults as children to help us navigate and find resilience. Yeah. You know, listening to, and I think you beautifully pulled and wove that thread, Judy. And it reminded me of a quote that one of our colleagues from Alabama shared one time, Sonia, and we were talking about the simple rule of safe, actually. And she shared a quote that basically says, safety is not the absence of threat. It is the presence of connection. Oof. And that just sat with me. She shared that I had to be a year ago or so. And she keeps it on a white erase board so that she sees it whenever she does go into the office. And listening to you pull that thread reminded me of that, that undoubtedly in life, there will be some aspect of risk or threat. And that does not 
necessarily make it unsafe if you do have those connections that allyship, especially for children and the adults around them. So I think we've done a great job of conveying the idea that safe, that our brains don't differentiate between falling into a physical ditch and hurting ourselves and that falling into any kind of emotional ditch can make something very unsafe. And we talked about different factors that affect that, you know, judgment, conflict, rejection, being misunderstood, being taken advantage of, you know, not being certain about how someone's going to respond. Always in our podcast, we kind of give examples from our experience professionally and personally of when it's not there, when it's scary, Mm -hmm. or when it's absent, and when it's present. So I'll start with sharing an experience when I didn't feel emotionally safe. And I'd like to use an early professional context. In a first job I had after I graduated from college, I was encouraged to speak up and to offer details about a problematic situation and to describe my idea for how it could be addressed. And people I really, really trusted encouraged me to do that. And as a result of these important adults in my young 20-something years of experience, I felt safe to raise it. And I did. And in fact, the problem and my solution were put into place and I was fired for insubordination. And when I harnessed all my internal power to speak to the person in charge and say, you know, like, wait a minute. I was told that I had stepped over a line. And it took me a long time to learn that safety is deeper and that I trusted people who weren't really trustworthy, that their agenda was bigger Mm -hmm. than what they had conveyed to me. So while it was a very painful experience, I also learned about really assessing vulnerability, assessing kind of the larger story of something. And that, you know, it's important as an adult to understand motives. And so I've tried to share my story with other younger people entering the workforce and knowing that sometimes things are deeper than what you see them as. So I got very hurt in that situation, but I learned a lot from it. How about you? Yeah, it makes me actually think of one from my preteen years. And so I grew up in the country. And then the summer going to seventh grade, we moved to the city. And up until that time, I had I, I went to a segregated school. 
So here I am going to a middle school. <clears throat> first of all, I'm going to middle school for the first time. I am going to a huge middle school. So I go from going from a school, an elementary school where I literally knew everybody, all the students, all the teachers, we all looked the same. We many had the shared experiences to now I'm in this huge school that literally looks like a prison. It is very diverse, socioeconomically, racially, in all of the ways. And I show up and I am fresh to this whole new environment. And I just remembered this feeling of not being safe emotionally. It wasn't something that anybody did. It was just everything was so new to me. Even the types of classes, because when I did the entry exam to get in, because of my scores, I was in college prep classes. So it was it was a large learning curve. And I think what created the space of unsafety was no one saw <laughs> that it was a large learning curve. And so being in seventh grade, I was really forced to quickly transition. And it was, I just remember that being a huge time at home. I, I grew up in what we would call today the projects. But then when I go to school, I'm in school with senator sons and things like that. And so I just remember that seventh grade year being that year of just feeling so unsafe um, and not having that allyship there and just what a difficult moment in time it was. And so that has always stuck with me. And, and I think in part, it is one of the reasons why I do try to be so attuned to what's happening for the children around me, because I remember that feeling of going, well, Everybody just feels like I should be fine. So I should be fine. You know, it's so interesting to listen to you. Of course, as I was listening to you, I was feeling empathy and compassion. And also just remembering those early years of adolescence and how much of a struggle that is, regardless of circumstances and your sound, like they were exacerbated hugely. I think you and I often feel like if we could invite adults to listen with understanding to the children in their environments and kind of be keen observers, because I think also those years that you're describing are years where children are trying so hard to be independent mm -hmm. and don't want to need adult support. Yeah. So I hope our listeners are really thinking about their own children and the children they support and, and just inviting safe spaces for conversation about the experiences that they're having that may feel unsafe to them. So in a more optimistic note, perhaps we could each share an example of what emotional safety looks like in a situation where we did feel respected and or supported, seen, trusted personally or professionally and how that impacts us. Yeah, I can start us off juxtaposed to my seventh grade experience. And I talk about 
my early childhood teachers often, but there's one in particular, and she was my first grade teacher, Mrs. Brockerton. And I've always been an avid reader and we didn't have books really. Well, we had adult books in the home. And I remember her observing me reading a Harlequin romance novel <laughs> on the playground. Because what do you read? You read what you have. And the very next day when I got to school, there were books waiting for me. Wow. There were books for children waiting for me. And I don't know if she understood how safe and respected and held that made me feel in that moment because easily I could have gotten into trouble for that. And she didn't focus on that when she simply said, what are you doing with your mom's book? And I said, well, it's what we have at home to read. And she said, okay. And then she just created this opportunity for me to read children's books. And I felt so seen because she didn't bring me what I would call the baby books. I mean, clearly I'm reading, you know, romance novels. So she brought me books that were more for children a little bit older than I was. And many, many years later, I've never forgotten that because it, it was a moment where I felt seen, heard, respected in such a feeling of not being judged. I think I'm going to do the yellow highlighter rather than telling another story. So words you said were not being judged. And you said that at the end. And I think it leads the story for me because there was so much room for judgment. Mm -hmm. And what she did, that wonderful teacher, that first grade teacher, was use her observation to create an opportunity. And by by not judging and quieting that judgment and rather using the opportunity of observing to make a different set of decisions, you got to feel seen, held, respected, and you got to learn. It's such a beautiful segue <laughs> into what the research says mm -hmm. about safe emotional and physical environments through our stories, every one of them was really a story of mutuality, not necessarily the best mutuality. <laughs> you know, the mutuality in your seventh grade story of other people not creating a safe space for you, the story of your first grade teacher being a story of someone making it two-way so it became an opportunity. You know, my story of my first job and kind of the absence of genuine two-way. So research tells us, as we know, that safe environments are the foundation for a supportive climate and culture. And a climate and culture of safety communicates this message of support. And I think that came through in stories that we shared both within a classroom, in a childcare center, in an agency, in our homes, in the wider community, you know, in businesses where workers feel psychologically safe, there's more productivity. In programs where the staff feels safe, there's more productivity. In classrooms where children feel safe, there's more curiosity. In homes where, you know, the partnership is one of psychological safety, People stay in those places and thrive. So I think that this idea that supportiveness 
leads to greater psychological safety. But let's talk about how safe environments really encourage exploration and self-expression. I'm specifically thinking about my experience as a teacher for young children. And when a space, in my observation and my experience, when a space feels physically safe, children move about freely without risk and without danger. And also the adults in that space, because they know it's a physically safe space, they are more relaxed. I know as a teacher, when I've done my checks and I know the classroom and all the things is safe, I'm more relaxed and I'm more able to encourage the curiosity and exploration of the children because I know they're not going to be harmed. Um, and I think similarly, that's what it's like psychologically too, when children know that they're safe, they can spend less time with their body in fight or flight, and they can really be open to curiosity and learning. And that's where you hear the laughter and the what about, and oh, I wonder what would happen if. And your voice even reflected that, you know, like as soon as you talked about psychological safety, your voice lightened. It was interesting to listen and watch you in that moment. You know, I think for me, with children and with adults, it's just so clear about people's freedom to speak up, to share ideas, to ask questions. Um, I certainly didn't grow up thinking it was safe to ask questions. Um, I loved when I was in graduate school and my professor introduced us to the term turn shark that, you know, starting when we're three or four years old, we already know who's going to stick their hand up in the air. And so the rest of us kind of just sit back. And in our mutual learning method at Leading for Children, you know, the structure that we've created for people to have conversations where they can begin to trust that other people are interested in what they have to say and describe their first experiences of feeling safe to share. And one other thing we hear so frequently among the adults in the child's ecosystem is, well, we want to give children that freedom to speak up, but we don't know what it looks like or feels like. And now that we start to experience it, we can make it more accessible for children. And I think I know I'm not always so aware of the way in which my listening tone or my vocal tone impedes another person's sense of psychological safety. But that's certainly something we can all be much more intentional about. How do we show up in situations to create psychological safety for others? And, you know, there's no question that when I'm relaxed, I'm much more productive. And the research certainly affirms that. Yeah, yeah. Well, through experience and observations and research, we've really come to understand that a safe environment contributes to exploring new ideas and taking risks and feeling free to make mistakes. And in turn, that leads to confidence. And that's important both for children and the adults. And so thinking about just how important it is that children get to experience it, and they also get to see the adults that they care deeply about experience it as well. You know, in our field of early learning, there's so much discussion 
about a safe physical environment. Mm-hmm. And today we've explored, you know, <clears throat> this idea of safety in the environment being psychological safety. I think the the final point we want to emphasize about a safe emotional environment is the impact it has on relationships. Physically safe space makes it possible for people to relax and be more open to interactions. A psychologically safe environment also makes it easier for people to relax and be open to interactions. I'm curious for us to explore a little bit about how emotional and physical safety contribute to feeling confident and feeling trust. Because both confidence and trust are like, they're like the core ingredients to children's ability to thrive. Yeah. Yeah, they really are. You know, we often talk about how relationships and interactions, healthy ones, that is, how they are really the vehicle for learning or how it it really does impact learning. And I feel strongly that trust and that sense of psychologically safety, that that has so much to do with how a relationship is built and how it unfolds and also how it can be strengthened through those moments where perhaps there was a lapse in that feeling because also safety ultimately is a shared sense of safety. If one person in the relationship doesn't feel safe, then it's still not safe and it can also change. And so I think part of that trust is trusting that the other person knows you or is willing to know you well enough so that they can see and see what you need in that moment to be safe and that they can respond to that. So similarly to the seventh grade story, like to be able to trust that people in that space would see and be able to respond. And I think that also leads to confidence because then I can try things more freely because I don't have to worry about what will happen to me in this space if I don't quite get it right. One thing that comes to mind as you talk about it takes two, that it may not go well, is the whole idea of relationship repair. And is it safe enough to take the risk to repair a relationship? You know, do I have enough safety in this to forgive? to invite forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And I think too many of us have a lot of historical wounds and we carry those wounds. And often those wounds impede our, like we bring them Mm -hmm. into our workplaces or into our classrooms, our childcare centers, you know, our interactions and being able to ask ourselves, you know, how are our historical stories impacting our ability to show up now, to create psychological safety now for our families, for our peers, for the children that we support, for our thriving communities, is something I know that we as an organization are grappling with and that, of course, we want to invite our community to be thinking about with us. 
again, I think about children. And I think one of the greatest gifts we can give children in each other, and, but really thinking about children, is the ability to build that trust enough that it's two-way. And I think to me, one of the most precious things in the world is when an adult can say to a child, I'm sorry. I think that those two words to a child builds so much trust and it also sets them up to be able to understand how to engage in relationship repair and and just where I grew up. I understand, you know, my experience has been that's not something I experienced a lot as a child is hearing adults say to a child, I'm sorry. Me either. Me either. I feel like I had to learn that so much later in my life. And an important person in my life and in my partnership with Andy was the person who said, remember, there's room on top of the mountain for two people. And do you really want to be on opposing teams with the people that you love? Mm -hmm. And I think that once you realize how great it feels to be on the same team, it makes it much easier to say, I screwed up. I'm sorry. I think so often we talk about the difference between wanting to be right and mm -hmm. wanting to be curious. <clears throat> and I think staying on that space of curiosity is what makes environments safer <laughs> emotionally and staying on that place of curiosity and observing and wondering and questioning is what invites our younger generation to also be curious and safe. Yeah. I want to share an excerpt from the book We've agreed that safe means protected from danger and risk. And when the emotional and physical environment is safe, whether it's your home or your workplace or a center where young children are cared for and learn, the space conveys a clear message that all are free from harm, risk, and worry. Mm. Everyone can trust that there is no threat to their physical or emotional well-being. Wow, Nicole. Free from harm, risk, and worry. That's a beautiful passage to share. Thank you for that. So at Leading for Children, our approach to building strong communities for us and for children starts with each one of us. Today, as we talked, Nicole and I shared how we continue to grapple with our past and our present, how we use our past and our present to help us ask more questions and get to a place where we can feel safe as adults so that we can make it safe for children. Thank you so much for joining us in today's conversation about a safe emotional and physical environment another one of our 11 simple rules for thriving communities. Please check out our book about the 11 simple rules that you can find in the library of our website, www.leadingforchildren.org. And also you can stay in the loop with what LFC is up to by subscribing to our newsletter via our website. And we look forward to next month when we'll talk with you 
about the next simple rule, calm. Thanks, Judy, and thanks everyone who's listening in. 